At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana, coming to you from the Freedom Doc Studios. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. In previous episodes, we get a really good cross-section of industry. We get innovation. We get startups. We get clinicians. We get doctors. Exactly like we just say in our introduction every single episode. A rare treat is when we get somebody from academia who wants to come on the show and really advanced what we're going to call free market principles surrounding healthcare. It, it, it tends to be such a refreshing conversation that I say this a lot, but I'm really excited to have our next guest on here. So please welcome Elise Amedro, the Open Health Project Program Manager at the Mercatus Center, George Mason University. Elise, thank you for volunteering to spend some of your precious time with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Now, like I said, I tend to be repetitive when I want to really drive a point home. You're working at George Mason University, and usually if anybody is in healthcare and they see a university or a college or anything like that, business card or title, they're running the other way. You have an interesting story. George Mason's doing some incredible stuff. The Mercatus Center is doing some incredible stuff there. But I really want to dive into your background, kind of your journey and how you got into this. And then we can really dive into the meat of subjects as far as policies and all that kind of fun stuff that, you know, really uh, puts people up in arms and pitchforks and and torches and make you come after both sides of the aisle there. But you are a native, is it Swiss person? What, what do we actually say uh, for, <laughs> for somebody who was born and raised in Switzerland? A Swiss. You are a Swiss. There you I go. I am a Swiss. There we go. <laughs> a Swiss citizen. Um, yeah. And briefly, just about the Mercatus Center, we are at George Mason, but we are separate 501c3. So we have our own independent channels in that way. And I'm obviously just speaking on my own behalf. Um, but I grew up in Switzerland. And so I was always really interested in, in uh, all questions of political economy. Like my dad and I spent long hours the kitchen table um, when I was a teen, especially discussing political questions and, you know, how the economy was going, what needed to change, what was going well, what was not going well. And uh, I think he really instilled some free market principles in me at the time because he is very involved in all things kind of classical liberal politics over there. So I didn't really give much thought to healthcare at the time. It was just more generally, you know, how does the economy work? And so I ended up studying business, uh, which was kind of a way of, you know, I can play a role in the economy by, by being in business. But while I was in grad school, I went to grad school in North Carolina. I had my own personal experience with healthcare that was, that kind of <laughs> launched me into this career. So 
at the time, I was subject to the individual mandate in Switzerland. So in Switzerland, if you are a citizen or resident, you have to buy health insurance. Um, the beauty of it is it, it's pretty free market oriented. Like it's not an insurance plan from the government. Uh, it's a plan from a private company that abides by pretty strict government guidelines. Um, but you still have a choice. However, I didn't have a choice of whether to buy it or not. Even though I was abroad, I had to buy it. And my grad school had the same idea. I also needed to buy their insurance. So I was doubly insured that year. And I spent, as you can imagine, a lot of money on, on these plans. And uh, being a pretty healthy person, thankfully, I didn't need to use them at all. So I dumped, <laughs> you know, perhaps $10,000 or more on those health plans uh, while not needing them at all. And um, that kind of opened my eyes to, to the question of perhaps this is what's leading to, to you know, inflated healthcare costs, <laughs> is that we just dump money into health plans that we may or may not need. And you think that money's got to go somewhere. I want to really dive into kind of the, the um, compare and contrast on different type of, of national healthcare systems, because there is a large segment of the, US, of the U.S. population who says, oh, well, let's just look to the European countries and just model what they do. What are your thoughts on that line of thinking? So first, Europe is not a monolith. <laughs> You'd be surprised to, to learn that there are many countries in Europe and they each have their own system. So you have a variety of systems, like I just described briefly, the Swiss system. It's along the lines of what we call the Bismarck model. So in the 1880s, uh, Otto von Bismarck, a German man, um, designed this system. And it, was, it did rely um, heavily on the private market. There, the idea was we're going to crowdfund healthcare, which is all in all not a terrible idea, right? Like it just makes sense. You know, you have different needs at different times. So several systems still have something that's broadly described as a, the Bismarck model, Switzerland being one, Germany, South Korea. Are some examples, you have other ones that I think people like more uh, when they're you know, on the more progressive side of things. Um, it's a system called the beverage model, and that's what the UK has, for instance. So in the UK, you give your money to the government, and really the government takes it from you, um, if you, if you look at it that way. And uh, in, it, in exchange, the government provides all of the healthcare needs that you might have, or at least all of the healthcare needs that it thinks you has <laughs> you have right so um, the government is in charge of the entire system and uh, you're at the mercy of it and if you don't like it uh, you're welcome to spend additional dollars on those products uh, if you want or if you have the money for it in Canada it's much the same except there it's almost illegal <laughs> to actually purchase it on your own so that's you know there are a variety of systems the bottom line though is as much as we might dislike the US system, it has private markets in it still that are pretty powerful. And, you know, over half of the country is insured via an employer-sponsored plan, which is a private plan, heavily regulated, but private. And uh, that's something that we shouldn't take for granted. And then the other thing is you can't wake up one day and say, oh, we're going to change, change systems. Like, it's totally unrealistic. So how do we go from where we are right now instead of thinking that we can just copy a, a model and import it right away? I appreciate you bringing up the actual like technical and, and, and kind of the uh, intellectual terms behind the Bismarck model, the beverage model. And to me, it's like, well, yeah, the, the, the United States health insurance industry started with a group of people getting together. It's actually trade unions getting together and say, hey, let's if we all get hurt, let's let's all say, look, we're going to be healthy. We're going to try to eat well, you know, whatever it was. 
back in the 40s, uh, actually before that, gosh, 20s and 30s, and said, we're going to help cover costs for each other back before doctors were even employed by hospitals. I mean, you know, there was there was some things that needed to happen to move this forward. And then it just feels like such an overcorrection to what we have now where you're really saddled with a ton of expense, like you were talking about. So, you know, somebody uh, coming from your background, you're forced by the government to buy a private company's health plan, which, gosh, if I'm that company, I'm like, awesome. <laughs> you know, That's right. I, I love it when my uh, product is legally mandated to be purchased. That, that, that doesn't have any corruption or anything, you know, potential uh, or any waste or anything along those lines. And then you get to school and then they say, well, you have to buy our plan, which is, again, totally bizarre to me. So it feels like you were saddled with a ton of waste, a ton of expense, and you have a unique point of view from the outside. So bring us through that. And how did you get from that and that experience into where you are right now? So obviously understanding the, the payment issues, right? That, that was one big thing that was my experience. I was also really interested in questions of drug pricing. For instance, I worked at a startup in undergrad looking at uh, organs on chips, like how we can do better drug trials without using animals or, or even people for, you know, some of it. And uh, uh, that was something that also intrigued me, like how, you know, there's this amazing technology available out there and it, it, there are, you know, restrictions again in, from the government preventing them from taking off. So all of this together brought me to the Mercatus Center, which is, uh, we're, so we're a nonprofit uh, research center at George Mason University. We explore how we can connect academic ideas to real-world problems, which is something that I find fascinating because if you think of academic work, usually it's published in peer-reviewed journals that, like, if you're lucky, like a person and a half will read. Um, so how can we make sure that some of these findings, which have policy implications, can be read by people who can take action based on them, and specifically lawmakers? So we translate complex academic uh, findings and, and papers into actionable policy recommendations, um, both at the federal and at the state level. So I was immediately interested in, in this idea and joined the Mercatus Center back in the summer of 2018 and have been there ever since, uh, working to, to build you know, strategies around uh, those free market principles for advancing you know, more patient ownership of their healthcare, uh, more direct interactions between doctors and patients, and a more streamlined, free healthcare system in terms of, you know, how those different players interact so that the government doesn't dictate um, the terms of the exchange. We're talking with Elise Amedro, Open Health Project Manager, Mercatus Center at George Mason University. These are all fantastic points. And, and one of the things that you've, you've told me before, and you, we mentioned a little bit, you know, when, when you were discussing the U.S. system, is that it is still heavily reliant upon the private sector. To you, that represents an opportunity. Walk us through where you see an opportunity when other people just see despair. So it is an opportunity specifically, as I mentioned earlier, Canada is so strict on preventing people from accessing private options. And, you know, because the private sector sounds scary, like a for-profit healthcare that can't be good, right? Like we don't want doctors making money off of sick patients and drug companies, like all of this is evil. And we have this gut feeling that healthcare should be accessible by all people, uh, no matter their ability to pay. And there's something really beautiful and ideal about this, this concept. But in practice, when there is no private market whatsoever, 
you're completely dependent on the government. And no government has all of the knowledge needed to do that well. And we see that happening around the world right now, especially in the wake of COVID. It was extremely obvious that, you know, governments can react quickly to things like they, they, they'll do what they can. They'll shut you. <laughs> they'll shut down a city, right, because they have no other place to put people if they're sick. That's not a great option. We didn't have those issues nearly as much here in the U.S. And that's because there are private actors who can say, well, I have this hospital. I'm going to just, you know, take care of patients. I'm going to increase the bed capacity. If there are drugs that the government doesn't choose to cover, like in, in the U.K., they do a calculation. Like they decide whenever a new drug comes on the market or becomes available, there's, <laughs> there are people in government who will sit down and measure what they think is the value of that drug. You know, how many years of, you know, quality life years, like, will it add to you? And um, if it's not enough, they just won't cover it at all. So you, then you're left to, to have to pay for it on your, on your own. Here in the U.S., you can find an insurance plan that covers it, right? It's like some insurance plans will decide, yeah, this is a valuable drug. We want our patients to have access to it. We'll cover it in our formulary. And you're welcome to purchase that plan if, if it works for you. And that cannot be understated. And then finally, when you have a responsive supply from the healthcare provider side of things, you're more, much less likely to have to wait um, for treatment. And here we're very lucky with access to healthcare that's really quick, you know, really efficient. That's something that can be said of other places like in the UK, there's one in seven British person that's on the wait list right now waiting for some sort of care. Wow. Um, we don't have the statistics here. <laughs> no, and, and those are the stats that you don't really hear about, right? It's, it's all about this one-tenth of a percent of possibility thing happening. But people kind of gloss by that and they kind of accept it, say, well, if we go to single payer, then yeah, there's going to be quotas and there's going to be kind of like you're regulating any care. And if all doctors go to government employees and they don't want to work past 4 p.m., then eh, oh, well. And I think one thing that we don't really talk about much in the U.S. was the diversity of, of treatments that really came out trying to deal with COVID and COVID patients and, and symptoms. This is where a lot of the innovation was taking place, and I credit private markets for that. I do not credit you know, government or government programs for it. Some people might say, well, the government had to fund a lot of different stuff. And then actually what it did was just politicize everything else that, that was going on the ground level. And again, you put your political dukes up whenever you try to go down that territory. So the innovation from the private market, to me, is an opportunity. That's what's really fun about it, because when you deal with private markets, what you really want to do is have your government create a an environment that fosters competition, fosters companies to be better. And that's where government interference actually gets in the way. So I'm curious about what, what you saw, you know, two years ago during COVID, specifically around, you know, at the stroke of a pen, government mandates, government requirements for how healthcare is delivered just disappeared. What, what did that do for you guys when you're looking at that and pulling your hair out and saying, like, what in the world? Why wasn't this done 30 years ago? Yeah, it was it was funny. I was like, wow, some looks like the government read a lot of Mercatus papers very quickly. <laughs> uh, we have been advocating or at least researching those questions for a long time, asking about the supply, right? Like we there's lots of reforms that need to happen on the demand side of things, how we pay for care. And that's really where my personal interest really lies. But we've long studied, you know, what are restrictions on telehealth that are preventing patients from accessing those services? Um, what are restrictions on what providers can do, right? You, you have doctors, but we all know there's a shortage and a growing shortage of 
healthcare providers, how do we empower um, non-MDs to do more, right? Like nurse practitioners are very qualified to do a whole host of primary care services. How can we allow them to do that better without being restricted by, um, you know, mandates that they work with physicians on every, you know, every decision that they make? And those things suddenly, you know, became more commonplace during the pandemic. Like suddenly providers were able to do more and telehealth was something that that was now covered by insurance or um, could be done, you know, without needing to first see a doctor in person. You could establish a, a relationship with a provider simply over a Zoom call or a phone conversation. And so this, those things happen quickly. And that was that was great. And obviously, a lot of them are going away now because the public health emergency is winding down and uh, governments realize that this allows competition to happen and uh, they're protected industries that don't like that. So uh, those, those mandates are coming back, actually, sadly. But at the same time, I think we could all cheer for those changes while they were happening. The government took a lot of ground from the private market to during the pandemic. So the fact that we currently have 90 million people on Medicaid is completely unprecedented. And to go back to the international comparison, actually, that makes America, because Medicaid, you know, is all paid for by the government. Uh, there's hardly any cost sharing from the beneficiaries. So if you like, this is a mini beverage system that we have in the U.S. And it makes ours the biggest in the world, potentially, or at least from like developed countries. It's bigger than the U.K. because there are not 90 million people in the U.K. So we've suddenly created this monster of a, of a public plan where we're putting tons of people. We're not increasing the number of doctors that are actually taking Medicaid Doctors don't want to take Medicaid because it doesn't pay well and they get sicker patients or, you know, more difficult to work with. They just don't want it. So that was an increase of that was totally government driven. The government said, I'm going to reimburse states more if they if they do that, if they take on more patients, if they expand Medicaid. And so now we're left with these these 90 million people, a lot of them not eligible for Medicaid anymore, uh, but stuck on Medicaid because they can be covered by it. And we're taking away that opportunity for the private sector to take on those patients who would probably very well be able to afford their plants if they had a choice. It's such an amazing point you just made there that nobody, I've never heard anybody else talk about the actual number of Americans who are on a government funded plan. I mean, 90 million, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to actually find it. I mean, that puts, that's like the top 15 of global population if you created a country just out of those 90 million people. That is far bigger than what you just said. Like any any European country that has a single pair system on it, that is far bigger. Yeah. And it's amazing because you're like, well, yeah, you know, Sweden deals with a very homogenous population. They all kind of take care of themselves and look alike and kind of have the same mannerisms. But 90 million people, you get that kind of scale on there. I, I just don't see how a single pair system it obviously doesn't work in Medicaid. Let, let me just say it that way. Like, great salient points there that doctors opt out of Medicaid. They don't want to see them. It's a very unhealthy population by and large. And then it just boggles my mind that people want to say, you know what? That's a good program. Let's put the rest of the 350 million people in the U.S. onto that plan because Medicaid recipients are so happy. And then don't even. And then that's it, right? That's their cure uh, for the system. So I do want to ask... I'm not one of those guys that says, "All right, let's let's just complain about things and 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 um, sit around and be grumpy and then go about our day." You specifically are working on some very intriguing things. You mentioned uh, 
you know, nurse practitioners um, being able to practice top a license. I know that that pisses a lot of physicians off. And my message back to the doctors on that are saying, look, if if that pisses you off, then be better. Just be better than them. Don't go and rely on the hospital. Start your own practice. Deliver quality of care based on your experience and your education that is far superior to nurse practitioners. But if the market is demanding this, that means the physicians gave up something and they gave up a lot you know, in the past 30, 40 years. So while not being a huge advocate of the gap in education and experience that an MP has versus an MD or a DO, there's massive need for it. And if you talk to patients, they're like, yeah, I'd rather see a nurse practitioner because they actually treat them like people and not just stare at their clipboard. So there's your challenge, doctors. Be better. Start providing better care. And some are, right? But if someone is in a hospital and says, well, I need to see 40 patients a day and I get seven minutes with it, but I don't want a nurse practitioner to be able to do that, then you got to start asking questions about why you're even working for that hospital system in the first place. So we covered that one, at least. I, I feel like I always need to get that off my chest, you know? So what else? What other kind of cool stuff are you guys working on and, and kind of peel back, uh, give, peel back the curtain, give us a look behind the scenes? Yeah, I, that's a very good point. And, and I think the keyword for the entire system is courage, right? Because being going for something that's private just takes courage, right? It, it, you're taking risks when you go and you know, quit your hospital job because you were probably paid a salary, maybe had the working conditions that were not quite the ones you were hoping for when you went to med school, but you did have like a stable salary, not have to take care of much payroll or any sort of admin tasks beyond the provision of care and obviously billing codes are a mess and we can talk about that. But in, in general, you know, it, it takes something from, from a doctor to go private and do something that involves taking risks and having their own patients and running their own practice. But this is something that should really apply to everyone in America. If we don't like this system, we need to ask ourselves like individually, what is it about it that I don't like and how can I change my mindset around it and what can I practically do? So one big opportunity I see myself is for employers like their costs are going up every year and, and lots of employers will look at their health plans and just like throw their arms up in the air and say, wow, healthcare costs really are terrible. It's like, yeah, is there any other way, you know, to, to provide healthcare to your to your population other than just buying whatever Cigna or um, Blue Cross Blue Shield is giving you each year? Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of options. So there are obviously policy solutions that have to go hand in hand with those, you know, with, with these reforms. There are many ways in which employers are unable to do exactly what they would like to do. So if you think of, for example, HSAs, the only way you can give your employees an HSA right now is if they have, a, if you provide them with a high deductible health plan. Like there needs to be better ways of, you know, empowering patients to choose the type of healthcare coverage they want while also benefiting from this tax advantaged fund, right? So, these are the things we're kind of thinking about, like how do we give patients more agency? That also goes for Medicaid. We've talked before about, you know, in the past there have been conversations about block grants and how to, how to make sure that there is more innovation in the way coverage is provided to Medicaid patients. We can go into like more detail if you like, but yeah. Well, I, I, I like, the, you know, the rubber meets the road mentality. So there's the solutions, you know, we're coming off of an election here, new Congress taking, uh, being seated. How do you actually get anything done? How do we get these ideas in front of the right people? And how do we how do we execute upon them? That's always the biggest question, right? It's like people say, yes, this would be great. This would be great. This would happen. We're going to get kick government out of here. And, you know, we're not going to make it so expensive to hire employee number 50. So businesses can actually grow in a smart way. 
How do we actually put these ideas into action? That's a great question, and, and I need to be humble here. We are uh, an academic <laughs> center, so we, we're not in the weeds of, you know, like how, how do you get legislation passed, like, you know, by working with every single entity under the capital. But I think it starts with, with better messaging, too. We haven't been very good, I think, at addressing the issues. Like when people think, if, if people don't like the healthcare system, like we need to understand what they don't like about it. And then also making the problems more salient. So something that I'm very passionate about is showing the generational injustice of the current system, right? If you think of a younger person, they're generally healthier unless they have an underlying chronic condition, but that's overall more rare for someone who's in like their teens and 20s and 30s and 40s perhaps. And then over time, you start needing more, more healthcare. And yet, if we're concerned about the fact that young people can't afford to, to not be a, a you know, two-income uh, household, they can't afford to buy a house, then we maybe should ask also why they're spending, again, $8,000 on their health plan every year that they don't use at all, and also have to pay for the Medicare that their seniors are using right now that's co- going to be completely bankrupt by the time they retire. There are things there that we should actually realize that those numbers are that high. Because I think that would put urgency in the minds of lawmakers. Like if they cared about the next generation, they would look at those numbers and, and think, okay, we need to find a better way to fund this because it's completely unfair. Well, that's what the knee-jerk reaction is. Well, you're just going to push grandma off the cliff. You're going to let, uh, you know, you're going to say no more long-term care facilities. And, and it's funny because you created a world within third-party payers where, you know, long-term care facilities are really incentivized to keep people unhealthy because government's going to sit there and pay them out. They look at Medicare as like, oh, this is this gold standard. When people like you and I look at Medicare, like, well, this is just a government minimum. This doesn't make any sense. I, 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 this is my last resort, right? That's supposed to be the safety net. But now people are put it up on such a pedestal that it's almost like a psychological shift in the brain needs to happen. We have to change our way of thinking completely, like kind of what you just said there. But that whole cradle to grave mentality scares the shit out of me. I mean, it really does. Yeah. That's, that's about the only way I can I can actually put it. And there are medical professionals that are not going to just leave you bleeding out on the sidewalk. And I think that's what everybody talks about, right? You have somebody like, why are you paying you know, 27K for your family to have insurance? Well, what if something bad happens? I'm like, that is a lot of money. And then we laugh at Freedom Health Works. We say, well, yeah, it's it's 100 bucks a month to access a doctor whenever you want it, whenever you need it, no barriers to care. If people say, well, why would I want to pay for that? It just sounds like I'm dumping money down the drain if I'm only seeing a doctor once a year. And I, I'm kind of pulling my hair out of that one saying, how much are you spending for insurance? And you're definitely not using that. So what, let's just go apples to apples here, people. So I don't know, Elise, I, I always say, I, I kind of congratulate the government on a on a wonderful job of marketing and this fear mongering that that instilled this thought in our brains. I don't know how you combat it. I don't know what works. I don't know if you guys have seen anything that works that kind of gets people that light bulb kind of aha moment. So I, there, you know, no surprises here, but I I'm optimistic that the private sector is going to deliver something there, um, and that's exactly actually what you're doing too is believing that employers have something to offer that's different. Part of the the reason why we are so dependent on this more insurance is always better kind of mindset is that employers get a tax break, right, for providing health benefits to their employees. That in itself has created this culture of we expect employers to have health benefits for those benefits to be very generous, you know, like the lower the the out-of-pocket costs, the better, 
even if you don't end up using the plan at all. And so that's a tall order for the government because no one is bold enough right now to think about reforming this exclusion. But really, it would be the right thing to do. And it doesn't need to be, you know, overnight to just get rid of the exclusion. That's impossible. It just can't be done. But what are ways in which we can individualize this exclusion, for instance, and say it should follow the employee or it should follow the person instead of the company, right? So you're the one who gets those dollars and then you can choose whether you want to spend them on a health plan. In that case, those dollars become deductible. That, that would be you know, an interesting way around the current system where it's the employer that benefits from this tax break and employees. Generally speaking, a lot of employees have one plan to choose from. <laughs> You're not really choosing a plan when you have just one. So what if we made that possibility available to employees instead of employers? That could really create more uh, market uh, dynamism. Absolutely. And to me, that's more agency law than anything. That's IRS regulations, which don't need an act of God to get through Congress at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And most employers, most businesses would be like, yeah, I I really want to get out of insurance world, but don't I have to provide it? So, I mean, that's where you just run into it. So I I love the agency angle. Um, If we had a friendly IRS in there that said, yeah, okay, these individual payments to insurance, to health shares, take them off your taxes and, you know, let's, let's hit the ground running here. I think you cause a little shift in that and you'll push that snowball down the road. So I'm optimistic on that idea. I love that idea. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> Absolutely. At least last question for you. All right. So being a worldly person, being able to compare and contrast different healthcare systems and, and being in a, uh, in a center that is at the forefront of taking things, adapting them, see how they'd work here. How do you build from scratch the perfect healthcare industry in the United States? Well, that is an extremely complicated question, but I would say, obviously, you know, if I could spit out the entire system for you, I would make myself a central planner, which I have no intention of becoming, but (laughs) (laughs) it would be a system. I think we should aim for a system in which physicians and all other providers, drug manufacturers, medical device developers and whatnot can provide care on their own terms. So they would be contracting directly with patients right? The baseline should be you're a patient and you go and buy the products that are interesting to you. Health insurance is a great product. I am not against health insurance. I think it's a very valuable thing to have, but you should just go and buy the plan that works for you. If you're a healthy person and you're, you're not risk averse, you should be able to pay a very small premium a month with a high deductible, sky high deductible if that's what you want, and, you know, catastrophic coverage. If you're someone with a big family and lots of you know, responsibilities and you don't want to take care of you know, the minutia of, of picking every single aspect of your health care, you should be able to buy a comprehensive plan for your family, like a platinum plan with very high premiums and no out-of-pocket costs. But this should be up to people, like up to patients and then up to doctors to choose who they're going to you know, care for, what insurance plans they're going to take, and the safety net should exist, absolutely. I think there uh, is a strong case to be made both both like morally and also economically for saying that the government has a role to play in providing care and, and making sure that the people in, in society who have the least or have the greatest healthcare needs are not you know left to suffer on their own. Uh, but that should be a last resort kind of option because I truly believe that the market can deliver the vast majority of the care that we need without that kind of in- intervention. And I usually don't do this, Lise, but I'm going to add one more on there. Charitable organizations can get involved, too. It's not just a government monopoly on safety nets, right? That's why we have charities. That's why we want to 
encourage people to give to organizations that they support as well. Elise, this has been very educational. I appreciate you coming on here. Elise Amedro, Open Health Project Program Manager at the Mercatus Center with George Mason University. Elise, once again, thank you for spending your time with us here on Healthcare Americana. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's going to do it for this episode. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list, and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.